0: Ryan. Good morning, Rachel. How are you? I'm very well. Uh, do you take any medications by any chance, Rachel? I do. Oh, that's that's good. Uh, do you uh do you have any problems with your heart that we should know about?
1: Uh, no, but that that it, uh is something that I am aware of because my mum has heart issues. Do you think the truth is fluid?
0: <laughs> Rachel's biting her lip saying not wanting to say yes or no because once you go down that road you get destroyed by facts and logic. Mm-hmm. So Rachel, I'm actually doing pretty well. I'm excited. We've got a very uh challenging episode of Babylon 5 to discuss today. And we're doing it through what prism? What 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 point of view are we looking at this? A uh, retrospective. Uh, recap, so
1: spoilers.
0: Yeah, if you haven't seen Intersections in real time. You're a fool, and we're going to have to punish you. I'm just saying it. But we're actually called Yum Yum Podcast because of an amazing line of dialogue. Oh, what a line of dialogue it is from Star Trek Discovery, a series we have talked about on this podcast before, and hopefully will again. Did you know it's ending soon, Rachel? They said no, no more Star Trek Discovery, no more. And so that means one day we can officially end the Star Trek Discovery conversations, but... We're talking about Babylon Five,
1: and we aren't alone, are we? No, we are not. You, you, Ryan, Ugh. have more than one podcast. It is
0: this true. I have two podcasts.
1: They breed
0: these podcasts. Mm-hmm. If I if I feed them after midnight, there's going to be a lot of problems. <laughs> Uh, I've already spilled some water on the podcasts and now, oh no, I better not feed this guy over here after midnight or else things can go wrong.
1: Yeah, never feed a Bartek after midnight and a specific Bartek is our guest for today. (laughs)
2: I, I I couldn't really hear what you guys were saying because of all the applause after you said my name. <laughs> <laughs> Can't calm down, applause that's added in post production. Calm down, oh, I need to get my words in. Over
0: oh, in our film podcast, spit and post presents. You keep asking me to edit things in for you, and I keep saying editing Ryan isn't doing that. Well, guess what? Editing Ryan isn't doing for Yum Yum. Not not adding them because of course I'll add a thunderous round of applause after your name is said. Polite first polite time. applause, but a lot of it. Okay, like it's the same one but doubled up, but with a second delay from the other one. And one so. of them has an echo. Sure, why not, Bartek? Hello, how are you doing?
2: Good, good. I it's two thirty here, but I have to say good morning because I don't want to contradict good, good, you. Good,
0: good, morning. morning. It's actually supper time.
1: <laughs> hey, we don't know what time people are listening to this.
2: It could be morning. True, when true. they're listening to this, but they know what time we're recording because I said so.
0: Ah, oh, Bartek gave but away they... our
1: secrets. They don't know if you're telling the truth on that.
2: That's true, and Ryan could put a lot of sound effects over me saying what time it is. I just is, need so, to yeah. press
0: my button that shocks Bartek and then just say to him, never contradict me on the podcast. <laughs> that was just Bartek excited to talk about this episode That was me. Five. That was me
2: mashing Triangle.
0: So uh, could you tell us a bit about yourself and uh, the podcast you and I host?
2: Sure. And I'm glad to know you were feeding it, because I forgot. <laughs> um, so we do a podcast called Spit and Polish Presents, likingly because we are always spitting and we both happen to be Polish. I almost messed up the catchphrase. Don't, uh, don't do that. Don't do that. Yeah, I didn't want to contradict you from when you say it correctly. Uh, and we, the main show we do is called Pictures Power Hour, our weekly show where we... Uh, review a film that has come recommended from either me, you, or listening people.
3: When I ask a question, you will respond at once. You will not hesitate, you will not consider, you will not lie. Cooperation will be rewarded. Resistance will be punished. Do you understand?
0: I want to know who in intersections in real time had yum yum energy. Rachel, who do you think? We, uh, We didn't have many people to choose from. But there are people here nonetheless that could have licked their lips sexily, thrown their hair back or head, uh, because some characters don't have hair in this or very little hair, and say yum yum in a breathy, sexy voice. Who had that potential for you, Rachel?
1: The Drazi when he's wearing the executioner hood. Mm. Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic call out. I, I also circled the
0: I was going to say, I also circled the jazzy, but if Rachel said the interrogator, I would have also said, I also circled him down. <laughs> but my actual answer is our boy Sheridan. Sheridan doesn't get the yum yum energy enough on this show because he's very straight-laced. But when he ate that sandwich with defiance, I wanted him to lick his lips and say yum yum in a sexy tone of voice. Oh, he was just teetering on that edge. But uh, Bartek. Who had it for you?
2: So this is a really difficult one because, as you said, we've only really got three major characters and some extras, and two of the characters have a very notable scene where they eat something, and their reactions are not yum-yum. One of them is, this is really excellent corned beef. (laughs) Wiping his mouth. And the other one, Sheridan, is just grunting the whole time. (laughs) So it's a case of, like, Yeah, maybe they have the energy, but their literal words are, you know, this is some really excellent corned beef, and... "Mm -mm -mm -mm." (laughs) So, I almost kind of want to give it to the Drazi, just because, like, he's the mystery. I thought you were... Oh, come on. I think the only true answer we can say is that it is both no one and everyone, because the answer, much like the truth, is something that is all a matter of perspective, In one case you might have it that you know, no one would say it, but simply twist the perspective around and suddenly everyone has yum yum energy.
0: If JMS wrote a forty-five minute long script of people just saying yum yum in different tones of voice, I would have said this episode was brave. I thought, honestly, you were gonna I knew you were gonna do some twisty turny answer like that, but I wrote in my notes that Bartek's suggestion will be the random voiceover of that minister reading out the last rites in a very weird <laughs> tone of voice. He said those lines very weirdly. I, I, It almost took me out of the episode because it's very, very serious. And then this guy does the last rites and it's in this... I can't even replicate the voice. It's so arched and strange i couldn't pick his accent i was like is this an american accent is this an australian accent is this a, a an english accent i couldn't the guy was all over the shop this
2: but, is a really yeah artsy episode in like a different way to like the stephen first directed ones very you, artsy
0: you have the dvd summary yes for intersections in real time which is episode 18 of season four mm-hmm. and you have not read this dvd description
2: I've read, like, the first word, but then I stopped.
0: And then you stop because you want to have it fresh, come out of your mouth fresh. So let's hear a fresh, organic read of Intersections in Real Time.
2: Sure. <clears throat> so Season 4, Episode 18, Intersections in Real Time. Sheridan is alone and vulnerable. Dot, dot, dot. And a simple signature will set him free. An Earth Force Inquisitor draws from his bag of cruel tricks and mind games to coerce the captain into a confession of treason
0: he does have a bag Mm. that is factual he does in fact have a bag of tricks now history and relationship wise with this uh, mine is very simple I I, my immediate reaction is the same every time so it has not changed which this is in a good way which is I I I just my I get a big smile on my face and I say out loud, I can't believe they're doing this, but in a way where there's satisfaction because, narratively speaking, this is the point where Sheridan is at his lowest. He's been betrayed. He's been captured, and most of the time you would get the interrogation, but it would be a part of the episode, not the whole episode. And I have always just been so thrilled to bits, that they actually did it. They actually just said, no, we're not cutting away. We're not going anywhere. This is the episode.
1: Yeah, it's always one where I'm like, wait, this is the whole episode, isn't it? Like, I always think, oh, well, it can't be, right? They don't do this. And then they do, and it's great, and I love it. (laughs) It's a bottle episode. It's
0: a play. It's it's just a duologue for the most part. You have yep. other bodies come in to help make function happen, but really it's, it's a duologue and at the most you get a trio at one point. But uh, yeah, Bartek, for you, you've said this is one of your favourite, if not favourite episodes of B5, so... Walk us through a bit of your experience having watched this, and this this now this would have been your second time watching it, right? Yes, the o-
2: the only episodes I've ever rewatched properly are the ones that I've done for this podcast, which has been the interrogation episodes of every season. Um, and I had made the point since my first appearance here that, like, yeah, there there are I was pointing out three, but yeah, season three also had one. Uh, there are all these different types of interrogation episodes that all do it slightly differently. Um, and it really builds up to this one here, which is my favourite one, yeah, of the whole show. Where the first episode we had that I was on was a uh, "And the Sky Full of Stars," where the interrogator—it was like a team of two people who were using this science fiction technology to actually get inside a brain, um, and like work with some psychological stuff there. Um, they're not necessarily the most talented at interrogation, but they latch onto some opportunities. Then season two, which this episode had a callback to even, <laughs> yeah. uh, we had uh, Sebastian, uh, who does have a bit more psychology and like a threatening tone and some gadgets to help him along. Um, he has a far more naturally menacing way of doing it. Um, but there is very much a thing of like, yeah, you can leave at any time. Um, and the, the goal of it is very kind of abstract because, you know, he's working for the Vorlons. Um, we have a self interrogation in season three, which is basically, you know, the the character being interrogated is, uh, you know, facing themselves, basically facing their truth. They can no longer run away because it's themselves doing it. And then this one, in a lot of ways, it just has the most simple elements, but, the context around all of it just leads to this incredibly oppressing and oppressive and psychological experience where it's a dark room. The person doing the interrogation is like in any other context, like the most normal pencil pushing office worker you could ever have, and the the amount of cluelessness that our interrogation subject Sheridan has in this episode is just off the charts. It's like we've been building up for four and a bit, uh, three and a bit seasons now of Earth Force is, you know, you've got all the analogies to, uh, to like the Nazis, mm. um, Star Wars stuff. You know, they're an oppressive force. They use violence and cruelty. And it's just really bizarre to see that they have something so. Calculated and dark and otherworldly feeling at their disposal, and it's simple. And That's it's, the thing, and it's, it's incredibly simple.
0: It's not—they're not, they're not using the psychor. They're not using—they're just using a guy and words and some minor physical stuff from time to time. But like a lot of this episode is just talking and talking. And to just to, to just go off your point of Sebastian, which does get a direct call out here. A difference too is the interrogator in the other ones. Uh, whether it is "And Sky Full of Stars," the Inquisitor, and even to an extent the Franklin one, Shout they they here. all have a deeply like personal thing that they're going through themselves like we know what their thing is about by the end of the episode like yeah. Sebastian he he has a sadistic pleasure in hurting people like a part of the danger in that one is Sebastian is a serial killer and he's going to do this to kill you because that gets him off yeah he's not well, as
2: impartial as he comes with, like yes.
0: says he is well the interrogator here i mean we We only get his name because the credits give him a name. Same with Night 2, yeah. Same with Night 2. He doesn't get a name either. but, But this guy, he comes across like... And he even says it like, he has no investment. There is no malice. And so it is just another step in what you're going through with us about these interrogations and how they change and evolve. And some of the things are like uh, are recurring beats and themes, but this particular and what makes him like scary is he is so mild mannered yet he's, he's saying and doing horrific things, but he's, there's no pleasure in it. Like he doesn't communicate any pleasure in this or any real like yearning desire. Like with night, uh, night two, he became invested in Sinclair's story. like He became mm. actively excited to help him figure it out. While, while the interrogator here, William, for him, it very much is, I would really have liked if you didn't do that. If, I really wish you didn't do that. The most emotional he gets is to help wind Sheridan up. I, I,
3: I have no control over what will happen next. It's out of my hands.
2: I brought it up already, like this mysterious psychological dark room, like I the the fact that the antagonists in the show have something like this at their disposal, the whole psychological torture they do towards Sheridan, which again goes back to very simple kind of things going on. Um the words that our interrogator says, like I never lie, and it's it ends up being true. Like he it's always just like lying by omission, mm-hmm. if anything, like, oh yeah, I I ate this. And there's poison in there, it, but I'm immune to the poison, so... Yeah. I didn't tell you that.
0: Or he makes contradictions. But it's not necessarily a lie. Sheridan points it out at the near the very end. It's like, well, you said truth is fluid. But you also said that the indeterminate truth is this. So, well, which is it? Yeah. And, yeah, you also do have that sort of... It's lunch somewhere.
2: It's lunch somewhere, yeah. Technically, Sheridan didn't agree. <laughs> right.
0: He said an objective
2: truth. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, the thing about like whether you're trusting him, because yeah, he has this very, look, I don't actually have a stake in this. These are the people that do. He keeps reinforcing this idea. And for most of it, you do get this sense of like, okay, he is kind of just doing his job. But then you have the moments, like, when he's yelling, or, or the moments towards the end where he's, like, being really forceful about it, and it's like, okay, do, do you actually have a stake here? And there is this sort of implication, like, okay, maybe something is going to happen to him, because he does mention a few times that, like, you're actually safer than I am. They need you, are they don't need me, I'm, I'm expendable. Um And I remember, I think it was when he was getting in his face there in that last interaction, like the camera was like really kind of shaky as it was Mm. following him and really jarring. And there was this one moment where he was like moving away from his table to Sheridan's side. He gets near Sheridan and he kind of moves back for a second, then moves forward. And I, it like played mind tricks on me. It's like, whoa, he's like shrinking and then growing or something's going on there. And it was like... This really intense moment where I really felt like I was in Sheridan's shoes, because I guess, yeah, that janky movement would have been his perspective.
0: There's so many wonderful pieces of blocking and lighting. That's the thing to really commend about the this episode, is the darkness.
1: That's also what adds to the feeling of it being like a play, is that it, you're always very aware that it's a set, and that it's controlled. But that is on purpose from the show because that's what Sheridan feels like. He feels like he's a player on a stage being manipulated and controlled because they want him to feel that way. They want him to feel the pressure, the isolation and all of these elements are working visually to reinforce that for him in the setting, but also for the audience.
0: Brilliant pieces
1: of direction to what you're saying
0: is the set is very bare bones, concrete floor, black walls, a door that opens out to a little corridor that you just see some lights just reflect on the floor when they turn them on, and... The most character the room has it has it has a drain in the center of the floor like that's it like oh yeah yeah that's, the opening shot that's, you see it. and you see it throughout the episode and it's like <laughs> when
2: when I first saw that shot I thought that was like a shot of like a spaceship with like the light and like mm. the horizon I'm like oh no that's the ground that's a drain
0: <laughs> that's just a drain that's probably where he had to puke his guts up into right he there's no toilet in there and they certainly use that to help clean up
2: yeah and mop it in there
0: it's to To further go through Rachel's point of just sheridan in in a way is being in this play, you see him try and go against the script, and every time he does, you see how no 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 sheridan you're you're playing in exactly how he won, yeah, keep eating that sandwich, you're eating it defiantly, thinking, huh I've got him.' No.
2: No, it could use more mustard. Oh, do you think it could use more poison? <laughs> <laughs>
0: and, uh, I mean, uh, the darkness is, is beautifully captured visually, because you can always see what's happening, but at the same time it like like it really makes you uneasy, and, and, and that oppressive quality that's already present in the idea of this story, which is just, you are watching Sheridan get tortured for 45 minutes, that's an already an arresting idea, but to, to then have it be brought to life with this brute force simplicity. Here's a chair, here's a table, here's a guy with some glasses. And the fact that this guy keeps fiddling with his glasses and looking at them and the light shines through onto his eye and it makes you uneasy.
2: it takes forever for him to finish with his briefcase and sometimes he has to step out of the room to like get one thing he forgot. Yeah, yeah, and
0: it's very mannered. There's no aggressive qualities to it. In the in in how it's presented, and I just really love those shadows. And just he's wearing he's wearing a black suit, this interrogator, against a black background, and yet there's so much definition and contrast and highlights and lowlights and all of that, where you can tell everything. Nothing is bleeding into one another too much, but just enough to make you. Unsure, because there are those scenes, those intense close-ups on this interrogator's face where he just looks like a floating head, yeah, just talking at Sheridan, mm. makes him feel inhuman even though it's, we're right up close yeah. to a human face. Like so
2: In the book of uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, they make a point of, like, you remember in the movie all of the orderlies were black people? Yes. And they were wearing white uniforms. They did that in the book specifically because, like, the walls are as white as their uniforms, so they look like floating heads.
3: Now you're being evasive. It's better than being dishonest. Really? You said it was lunchtime, even though you knew almost certainly that it was not. You said that you've never been influenced by other people, and you and I both know. That's impossible. I, however, have spoken the utter and unvarnished truth from the moment I came through that door. Now, which one of us is being dishonest?
0: Now, Rachel, did you know that this is the 84th episode of the show? No. Yeah. Isn't that cool? Like, the one that's most 1984-esque is the 84th episode of the show.
1: Yeah, that is cool.
0: Yeah, I don't know if that was intentional or if it just landed like that, but it's it's a neat uh, thing to know nonetheless. We have to discount the Symmetry. gathering,
1: though.
0: Yes, well, that's episode zero. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, But uh, uh, another thing to to point out when it comes to this episode is it's the only episode of Babylon 5 without Babylon 5 in it. It never turns – we never go to it, we never get yeah. it. Outside of the – obviously the intro credits – We never go to Babylon 5. It's the only time in in the show and all the movies, I'm pretty sure, as well, where we don't have that be a
1: thing. No, like we get the flashback of him watching Ivanova who is on Babylon 5. That's the closest we get. And of course, Rachel, you've just said it. Flashbacks.
0: We only get flashbacks to help bring in the other cast members. Uh, Delenn appears as a vision to him a couple of times, but every other cast member is either in flashback form or not at all. Not at all. This is the only episode where, like, you only like with the least amount of cast members in it. The
2: only one giving you voice work is yeah, Sheridan.
0: Isn't that just something to commend as well? We've got like 110 episodes of the show with a large ensemble of characters, and that means you have to juggle things. Like You have to tend to things all the time. You have to make sure we're not running low on Franklin and where he's at, or, or, or we got to make sure that Londo is being like, we're touching base we with Londo. We haven't seen Jakar in
1: ages. We haven't seen
0: Jakar in a while, but yet we can still have the ability to just say, no, 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 only Sheridan. We'll have Delenn. She doesn't speak. Just have her there. Uh, and that's it.
2: I remember when I first started the show and I was telling you, like, oh, yeah, the opening credits had all these characters, but, like, not all of them are in every episode, and I was making, like, a minorly bitchy point about that, and here I am now, my favourite episode's the one where there's only really one main cast
0: member in it. Let's talk about the methods of torture and interrogation used here. Now, Rachel... We're going through this on our rewatch, so we all are aware of the, how this is a talky episode. This is an episode yeah. that... Di- we- so, like, it's pretty much all dialogue. There is use of physical torture. He poisons Sheridan with a sandwich. <laughs> he electroshocks him. He sends people in to grab him and toss him around. But... All of that is very, very, uh, like, secondary to the main torture, which is very psychological and is about that dialogue, is about that word, wordplay and the manipulation of words and and trying to coerce people to give up a little bit at a time. And I just want to hear from you, Rachel, like, what do you think about how B5 goes, goes about this? Because we've been going through these interrogation episodes and we've seen them hit the usual interrogation beats but this is well. On uh, but this was always the secondary part. Like you would have, oh, Sebastian will electro shock them and get pleasure out of it. Like whole sequences will be about how he's physically like he's going to kill Delenn. Or in and the sky full of stars, it was always if you're bad, I'm just going to hurt you. And then yeah. oh, you can hurt me too. And uh, Franklin was dying during his. But uh, what do you think about how this is just words upon words upon words.
1: It makes sense because for each of these interrogation episodes, the desired outcome on the point of view of the interrogator is different each time. And this one is about breaking Sheridan's spirit. So the tools to achieve that are obviously going to be psychological. But as William says, it'll be much easier, basically it'll be much easier to break your mind if we break your body first. It's crude. It's a means to an end. Whereas that was also... A goal of Sebastian's was to make them suffer physically. His sort of opening point of the truth is flexible and a matter of perspective is something that I circle back to a lot because we speak a lot about absolute truths, but what those truths are change and sometimes they change slowly and sometimes they change quickly it was a universal truth for a very long time that the earth was flat it also makes me think of the, those kind of situations like the when he's bringing up what is truth and like where where's the line and how flexible is it because of how defensive people get when they think that their idea of the truth is being attacked.
0: I was really drawn to how he broke down Sheridan's job. You're a soldier. You say you're not political. You're not political, are you, by any chance? Oh, no, no. And a soldier's job is to accept that the truth changes on a daily basis and that you have to abide by that. And even if it is contradictory, you just have to do that. And we know how Sheridan views being a soldier throughout this series. He he makes it very clear, and a part of his uh, justifications for why he's fighting back back against Earth is that you have to have a conscience, and you have to be able to stand up and say, no, this is wrong morally. As a soldier, it is your job to do that as well. And one of the things I found to be brilliant in this is uh, uh, the interrogator rarely, if ever, brings up morals. He's always about truth. He's always about breaking things down in a very facts and logic, bureaucratic sense. Hence, he looks like an accountant. He looks like a pencil pusher. And he always obfuscates away from, from the ethics and the moral complexities, because that doesn't fit the argument points that we're going no, through. No, it
1: doesn't fit the narrative that is they want to construct and it makes sense that this kind of system would produce this kind of solution and
0: the ability to resist to fight back to say no many times in this series especially from the character of sheridan wells up from not just a sense of honour and nobility and justice, but from a deeply moral perspective. When Earth bombed Mars, that's
1: when he said, no, I'm not going to allow that, or when Attacking civilians and, uh, like, people getting caught in the crossfire when they didn't do anything wrong or were just wrong place, wrong time. It, he has a very specific... Sheridan has a very specific view when it comes to people being victims.
0: These type of people, like the interrogate and the Clark administration, want to corral you into thinking purely about logic and facts and details black and white black and white and if not to get so stuck in the mud of arguing the finer points of those things that you're not thinking about the human condition you're not thinking about morality and ethics and emotion. But that should be thought about. There's many times over, you see in history, it's like these 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 people will argue like scientifically this or logically this. We saw this with the Shadows, where they would talk about their theory of chaos like they were academically speaking. Like, sure, we'll kill several species but it's for the betterment of others they're removing so much and that's what i really liked about sheridan fighting back against this guy when he's motivating that drazi to fight back when he's when he's defying this interrogator by every time i say no there's always that grain of the human condition there that sheridan realizes that oh I've been lost in trying to beat this guy in an argument, but that shouldn't actually matter because what should actually matter is why I'm here in the first place. I'm here to do the morally right thing. Listen
3: to me. No, I don't know what they did to you in here. I know it must've been terrible, but it's all out here. It's all flesh. Now I know you
2: feel that they've won. But as long as you don't break inside, they can't win. Don't do this. Going off that last point, you were talking about the Drazi when he was, you know, motivating him. I really like that line he said where... I can't remember the exact words, but it was like, this is just flesh. Like, mm. the torch techniques, it's only something they can do to the outside body, and it really encapsulates that whole idea of, you know, it's about your actual morals, your ideals that you're holding strong to. Which is why he has the victory every time he says no. Every single time I've come onto Yum Yum, the last three episodes, I always bring up uh, the point of insecurity I have walking in of, you know, I'm not watching the show from the beginning. I'm worried about, like, oh, well, I have to catch up on stuff. And I always find myself falling into saying, wow, this you know what? This episode actually kind of does stand on its own. Like, I feel like someone can watch this outside of context and get this or this or this out of it. I didn't have that insecurity walking into this one because I remember it was so, you know, bottled, as you say. Self-contained. Self-contained. And it really, really held up in that regard here. So even though you you bring up all this stuff about, uh, you know, Sheridan throughout the series, these things throughout the series, and I didn't have that fresh in my head because it's been like a year and a half since I've watched the whole show. I'll remind everyone that a week before I did the season one episode I did was when I finished Babylon 5. Um, But yeah, just everything that you learn in this episode that gets brought up, it reminded me of there are two things mainly that it reminded me of which i've actually well, one of them i've seen after finishing babylon 5 uh, a couple of months ago maybe a year ago we watched the film 12 angry men yes and in that one that's about you know the jurors are having a discussion about a court case that happened and we the audience only see what's happening in the juror room we don't know what's happened in the court ca- uh, room we don't know exactly who the defendant is but we learn these little bits of information as they get brought up And in this episode, it feels like you could just walk in and this can be a sort of standalone short film. Like, here's a man who is being interrogated and here's an interrogator. You don't know, you know, the background behind the interrogator. You kind of pick up, like, okay, it's an Earth Force. There's a guy named Clark. And you pick up that this guy here is some sort of rebel who's fighting against the Earth Force. And you get these little names. Like, I remember there was one point where uh, the interrogator brings up oh, no, no, sorry, it's when the Drazi's giving the confession and he's like, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've been working with against A and B and C and then Sheridan looks at the interrogator and says like, oh, C didn't actually help you guys, but he's just someone that Clark, you know, has a issue. like. Yeah. Waits he's
1: inconvenient. Want... <laughs> yeah, and it's... <laughs> Waste not, want and it, not. And
2: it, and it like, it would tell an un- a clueless audience, like, okay, the first two are, you know, real, but, like, the third one is just like, oh these guys are really that corrupt that they are really making up stuff and being very blasé about it with this interrogator guy. And even the flashback at the beginning, which is, you know, flashing back to real things that happened, um, I would almost compare that to the Greenbird sequence in Cowboy Bebop when he's falling off the church and you're getting these flashbacks to things that, like, you don't get the full context of, but visually they tell you so much.
1: And it's also about the the feeling of those moments and those memories and the idea, particularly in this episode, of those being hinge points. Yeah.
2: He's not just Rebel A who happens to work in the third room from the left of the big spaceship, he is, you know, big deal guy who's talked to big deal people.
0: The episode plays around with time. And the manipulation of time, and to disorient Sheridan. We lose track of it. Good morning. Now it's lunchtime. Now it's supper time. You can't have this at this time. And Sheridan is left on the floor, throwing up his guts for who knows how long. We don't know, nor does he. And he's strapped in a chair with this audio being played over and over again for who knows how long. And so they may not be necessarily wanting to make him forget things but they are distorting his ability to grasp a reality he isn't able to sleep he isn't able to eat they're breaking his mind body and soul and so another brilliant piece of the torture i loved another great bit is that sandwich we all love the, the sandwich and how that, that that performer really makes it look delicious. He's just chewing into it. Oh, mm, it's so good. And he's wiping his mouth and everything. And when he reveals about it being poison, that it's the toxins, and that you have to get a, a build-up to it, and you have to enjoy a little bit of poison each day to get an immunity and to, yeah. to really embrace it, I've always looked at that as a, as a few different things being commented upon there. At the beginning, obvious poison sandwich. Another part of it was that followed on from a conversation where he specifically references Delenn's existence. And so I've always taken it as a bit of, at the beginning of it, a bit of a jab of, like, you've allowed these foreign elements, these toxins, these aliens to come into you and to affect you, and over time, you've accepted it, you've become normal to it, you've embraced it, you've embraced them as a lover. But also... I think it ties into what is the central goal of the interrogator which is I'm feeding you a little piece of inf- misinformation and a little piece of lies and, and a little piece can of distorted accept truth
1: this then you can accept that. that and then you have to accept this bigger thing and it just snowballs and I think a point where I really stopped and appreciated that was when it's just like he starts out just trying to get Sheridan to confirm that Ivanova is his second. Name names, please. And then it, it snowballs into, well, if you say this, then you say this, and then Ivanova is this.
0: We saw this with Zach Allen with the Night Watch. It's the same move, which is, well, it's already been confirmed that that's the case. We just need you to confirm it. And once you've done that, that means you've accepted responsibility for that. So that means we can now do this and you can't disagree. Hey, Zach, could you please confirm that that shopkeeper did say these things? We've already got it on a record, but could you just confirm that he did say these things? And that's him here with little things like, could you confirm that you said you weren't political? Yeah, I'm not political. Okay, so that's interesting. We didn't think so either. So that must mean this, right? And it's like, no, you're going to argue that, but you agreed to this before. And so I look at that line about the toxins and how you have to build up an immunity to them. And over time, you agree to it. And that's how he's trying to break Sheridan in this episode. You've agreed it's lunchtime. Or you've agreed that it was nice that I got that information about your father the polite thing the the next thing you would say is thank you for that and i just was really enamored by that line because i think on other watches i look at it very very just two-dimensionally as like oh he's telling him he's poisoned sandwich because
1: we all i think we all knew that the sandwich was, was there was, was some good. sort of trickery it was playing. gonna be a trick. Yeah, it's just like you're not just gonna give sorry him well a- sorry
2: let me just remind us all uh Uh, Bag of Cruel Tricks and Mind Games. That's (laughs) that's where the sandwich came from, as well as the information about him not being political. You know, about that
3: sandwich, Captain, it's a funny thing about toxins. I've always felt that if you eat a little poison every day, you get used to it. It desensitises you until you can swallow large amounts of it with no difficulty whatsoever. I've always thought that that was a metaphor. I could just never decide what for.
0: You, we've figured out, what's keeping you alive is those fucking morals, those ideals. So let's break them apart. Let's show you that they don't exist. That... You change whenever you want it to be convenient. You should listen to the government because they're smarter than you. They're better than you. They're right. That's the truth. You can't beat that because that's a pillar of society that cannot go away. You, on the other hand, you can fade away and it'll mean nothing. You could die here right now and we'll replace you with a deep fake, with an artificial version of you. who will never be as good because there'll always be doubt. But guess what? will be good enough.
2: God, that uh, that whole thing was a lot more relevant on my rewatch than the first time I watched it like a year and a half ago, right?
0: Oh, yeah.
2: AIs are the big thing right now for people listening 10 years in the future.
0: Bartek, as people who have um, studied drama and have done theatre productions, you can definitely see how this has that theatre quality to it. Oh, yeah, The Black Room. And the ability for scenes to set themselves up, where it's like, oh, a character just leaves a room, fade the lights off, fade them back, in, the character comes back in the room. Now it's a new scene.
2: I've always kind of had the thing when I watch like a TV show. Obviously, these days, if I do watch a TV show, I've got like the episodes available to me. I don't have commercial breaks or anything like that there always is this sort of like, oh, okay, here it is, like the cut to commercial. It's like, oh, well, it's not a commercial for me. It's just going to fade to black and fade back in. And I suppose there is an element of like, okay, well, it's ending a scene and the next scene's going to be like a sort of fresh start. But the fact that that artifact of, you know, the television era is still there is kind of still like, uh uh-huh, you got to have it. But in this one, the fact that, you know, I still have that cut in my downloaded copy of the episode kind of does give that yeah theater effect of hey this is when your track of time is going to be gone and you've got like you know the music cuts out because obviously that's what's going to happen then it cuts back in or musical ambience um and then yeah you've got the whole mystery of like any amount of time has passed but right now you're back on the clock we're back on real time
0: ah <sighs> That is, that's actually a great point because that's something I don't consider about anymore as well, that we watch things with the ad breaks, but we don't have ads. So like the function of them don't exist anymore. And so there is that level of, oh, they've written this to end like this, because that's what you do to make a punchy end of an act break for when you go into the ads, like the five act structure of TV. But
1: that doesn't need to be anymore uh and so it's a it's there to serve a function that no longer exists yeah it's an artifact which is a weird reflection on the content of this episode as well (laughs) which was totally unintentional at the point When it was made.
2: It would have been a lot funnier, though, if this was one of the shows that has, like, a specific, like, musical stinger for when it's ad break. Like, in say by the Bell, whenever there's, like, an ad break, they go, da na na
0: (laughs) (laughs) But we get to towards the very end when Sheridan has really been not budging on things, and we get that frantic scene where he just bursts in and just, leans right close to him and he's saying it like in a tone of voice where we don't have enough time it almost comes across if you weren't watching the rest of the episode that oh this guy's going to try and break him out like he has that level of energy to it but it's him saying he is the reason why we're doing everything the way we're doing it he's the reason why you're not dead he's the reason why all of this is played out like this and it goes into the you are a threat to their credibility. The tactic used right towards the end is to give this effect to Sheridan of, you've beaten us. You have beaten us to the point where I'm going to admit to you a weakness of ours that you are exposing that we cannot overcome. So now you can be comforted enough for me to lure you into the next trap.
2: And it also builds upon the attempted subtext that he's been pushing of like i am actually kind of on your side here because like when he bursts in and like talks to him he's like hey this morning they just said that it's all right to kill you off now so you know you're in deep shit right now so please do what i'm telling you think i've been comparing this i guess plot in my head, but I haven't brought it up yet, this episode, to a lot of the stuff in the Metal Gear games that are the prequels, like three and the other ones set in the Cold War. And there are a lot of parallels going on here. Like we brought up the, uh, this interrogator brought up the whole idea of like, you know, uh, alliances and enemies changing, big thing in the Cold War. Yeah. You know, America and Russia were the allies in World War Two, but then they were enemies Cold War. Um, the whole idea of an ex war hero defecting or like potentially having defected um you know turning them into a big villain after they were the big hero yeah this, i guess it kind of makes sense that this show uh, was made shortly after the end of the cold war oh yeah because like w- that ended what like
1: 1991 yeah around then and this
2: episode would have been like 96 97 98 oh, yeah, yeah.
1: Pe- people debate when it really ended, but a lot of people use the wall falling. That's the-, yeah. the end,
0: and that's why Earth is handled really well in the show. Where there's obvious parallels to Nazism, with the Night Watch with the armbands and the, a lot of the rhetoric, but we also see McCarthy era America be used. This is very much like that. Name names. It's fine. It's it's okay. Just do that. It's the right thing to do. Listen to the government, please, because you get to that point where if you step back far enough, you go, "What's really the difference?" It's it's some way of taking away people's liberties, their freedoms, their mo- morality under the guise of the government knows best.
1: Yeah. And
0: um, We know best. We have an ideal that is better than yours and you should obey it because we're right and you're wrong. So just listen because you're children.
1: We've talked before about how JMS goes to sort of the ideas, philosophies, and ideologies behind things and that enables a sort of sense of universality of, well, we can map sort of Nazi history over the top of this. We can map uh, terrorism responses over this as well because it's about the ideas behind those things and the justifications that humans give to those kinds of decisions over and over and over again. Hence, this feels for many people who
0: are watching it, you know, for the first time or watching it relatively recently, it has that prescient feel. Uh, whoa, uh, a year ago when you watched this Bartek, that comment about the deepfake stuff, blah, blah blah, wouldn't have hit as hard. But now it hits as hard. Well, the thing is, we it goes in waves. We're talking about, like, McCarthyism and Nazism, but, like, a lot of the torture techniques that are used in this episode were very much topic of conversation during the Bush years, uh, yeah. post 9-11, Guantanamo Bay, and there's, like, whole documentaries and whole cases about that. Of And uh, what was that movie? The Men Who Stare at Goats has a whole plotline. Well, that whole movie came as a plotline to be because they we found out about the torture interrogation method of playing music over and over and over again to people we wanted information from that's used here as well. I can't remember. It was like the Teletubbies or something. and Or no, Barney the Dinosaur. They would play Barney the Dinosaur over and mm-hmm. over again. And yet this was still made before all of that came out, but it still feels prescient because like with Babylon 5, does with a lot of things about humanity, both good and bad, whether it is... You know, we still have religion in the future, but we also still have poverty. We still have bigotry and hatred and fascism. And all of that can still thrive in the future of this show because it's really about how you see this writer, JMS, and some of the others as well, just look at history and go, have you ever noticed that we just repeat patterns? And we just change the names of things. And we we may change some of the methodology behind what we do, but it's, it's the same thing. We just do it again and again and again and again. And here we are doing it in a few hundred years in the future. And isn't it funny that when you watch this episode in 1996 or 1997, you will go, oh, it relates to these things in the past. But then cut five years in the future and it's like wow that episode has aged really well i
3: demand to see an attorney i demand the presence of a full military tribunal you have no right no you have no rights there's no courtroom here captain no tribunals no attorneys no justice no mercy no fairness no hope no last minute escape you will walk through that door When you confess, and not one second before!
0: One of the methods to break Sheridan they realize is, oh, he's too sure of himself. Well, what happens if we hurt someone else in front of him? Because he has empathy. (laughs) That silly old Sheridan has empathy for others. He has the innate innate ability to feel for other people. So what happens if we drag somebody in and just threaten them in front of him and made them be an example of what we could do to you, Sheridan, if you don't do what we want. And Sheridan went, is that an alien? <laughs> a drowsy? <drazi>. Those guys <laughs> fight over colours. I thought you were a solid snake for a second. Drazi. <laughs> 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 uh Rachel, could you walk us through what uh, is happening with this Drazi and who plays him?
1: Wayne Alexander is back. Um, he's back in some alien makeup.
0: This is the second, no, third time we've seen him in alien makeup. He was Lorien, and he was a random nan in uh, an episode, and uh, now he's back.
2: Yep. Sebastian felt alien. Yeah,
0: but, he was, <laughs> but that's just
2: him. But uh, yeah, he was from Britain.
0: Yeah, that, they're aliens. Freaky guys with their English accents. Ugh. Oh, Robin Atkin Downs. Robin can Downs, remember Byron. Well, he has
2: already played an Alien, actually, at this point. Yeah, he,
0: he played a Minbari uh, with a British accent. Minbury.
1: But, Rachel,
0: we've got Wayne Alexander. He is
1: back. Yes, he is back. He gets dragged in originally, um, and the interrogator uh, gets him to spout some bullshit about... Uh I helped Sheridan, I manipulated Sheridan, I did these things with the helps of these help of these people. And that links back to the Yvonne of the conversation and we already brought up how they just like
0: threw in a senator. Yeah, just run some random senator. He's not involved, but we just want to get rid of him.
1: Yeah, we just want a justification. It's fine, it's fine. And then Sheridan thinks and is led to believe that he convinces the drazi to not continue with the confession to sa- stand up to the oppressive and manipulative manipulative government. Don't give in
0: to your fear
1: um and it's just like what he's saying is really powerful and it's playing into Sheridan's ego of you want to be inspiring other people you you may not be politically driven but you are politically minded and then we get the reveal. At the very end of the episode. At the very end of the episode. Because the
0: Drazi says no. He's like, I'm not going to do it. The Drazi says no. You get, big, you get a big moment of sudden shift of tension where you know this is your last ch- chance. Yep. Mm, you know yeah. this right. And
1: those lines are repeated with Sheridan. Because Sheridan's led to believe that they electrocute the Drazi to death because they the they take out. him away the power drops out he's hearing screaming before that but not after that yeah
0: it's that's what room 17 does
1: that's what room 17 because it's scary
0: it's scary because they bring this in, and we don't know who it is nor does Sheridan, and it's just some random alien that they've dragged in, and they've beaten him to crap, and now he's at this point of admitting anything they want because he just wants to be free, even though that's not going to happen. That's just not going to happen. He was expendable before he walked through that door. He was your alibi, and you threw it away. Do you not have compassion, Sheridan? But he has this brilliant moment. Wayne Alexander, yes, played Sebastian the Inquisitor, and I don't think it's by an accident that they had him come in for this episode, but uh, he earlier played Lorien this season, which was a very kind character, a very close character to Sheridan, so to see him acting off of Bruce Boxleitner yet again is is marvelous, and this may be something i 'm picking up on, but there's this facial expression he has uh when sheridan launches into it when sheridan starts to do the motivation you see the drazi turn his head away and he has this what can look like a wince on his face but to me there's just this hint of yes i got him to do it Hmm. like there's this you played into my hand i don't know there's just a little bit of that hint to it and knowing yeah knowing what i
2: do because this is a rewatch and i know that like oh at the end it's going to be that he was in on it the whole time it did give me not this not like an interpretation of like you know you played into my hand but more of an interpretation of like Okay, so this is how he's gonna play into it. Like, I maybe the interrogators uh, interrogators didn't know what Sheridan was gonna do or how strongly it would work, and so maybe that was his moment of like breaking out of the act and just mm-hmm. like observing what's happening. But
0: it's very, it's very quiet. Yeah. They don't make a big deal out of it. It's just one of those things where, when you're watching it that first time, you're so caught up on who's this? Why are they? No, they're doing this to this poor guy. Like with Sheridan when you get the this is your last your last shot, this is your last chance. Do you understand that this Do you is the chance? Yeah. You are like Sheridan that it face dawning realization of no, don't kill this guy. This guy hasn't done anything. Leave him alone. I don't even know him. Like we don't know him. Sheridan doesn't know him. You feel compassion for this person that we don't know anything about, hence it bites Sheridan and us in the arse at the very end of the episode. But I mean for you, Bartek both on the original watch and this watch, this is an element thrown in. Like, here you go, Sh- Sheridan. You think you've been comfortable with us doing the good morning thing to you and coming in and laying out the table and cleaning my glasses? Well, guess what? We're changing that now. Bring this guy in.
2: Yeah, it gives someone that Sheridan can actually empathise with, of someone who's in the same situation as him. So the fact that he treats him differently to our interrogator and you know anyone else who he interacted with uh, shows like, okay, here's the real Sheridan coming out saying like the inspirational things that he would say. The fact that, yes, this is the, well, they, they don't think he's a, well, it's vague, like, but this is like the rebel leader right here, inspiring the troop.
0: How do you feel about how Sheridan, even though he has empathy, in a way, this is him winning an argument or like proving his point like i can motivate this guy to say no i i prove like i prove my point by doing that that's his argument at the very end of and how will you win by every time i say no and so with this moment here, you have this poor guy that's interrogated and Sheridan does that. He motivates him to say no. And it's in part because it's obviously because it's, again, the right thing to do, but in the context of the episode, it is also there for him to prove his point to the interrogator because you even see the interrogator during the scene looking over being like, huh, this is going differently, This is <laughs> working, <laughs> I mean, what do you think about just just that angle of it that you can look at it with as well? No, it's
2: good. Even when you do have the revelation that, like, oh, the guy was in on it all along, I didn't see it as as that as big a deal as it was the first time round. Because at the end of the day, Sheridan was still being true to himself. That doesn't change just because the person he was talking to was an actor.
0: Does, but it could shake. The foundation that he's built throughout the episode, for sure.
2: Oh, you could definitely fuck with him right at the end when he realises, but, you know, in the the moment, like, and in the wider context, like, it's still, you know, it was a genuine thing from Sheridan.
0: Babylon 5 can, on the occasion, be commented on as being very pessimistic, bleak, even hopeless at times. People Mm. are so used to wanting their the science fiction media to be a Star Wars or a Star Trek where either you beat the bad guy or you lecture them and we have a happy ending, yay! Fit in this box. You fight back against the power and you win and it's good. And Babylon 5 doesn't always abide by that. Sometimes you'll be, hey, Franklin found a cure for this disease, but too bad, the whole species died and people don't care. People make jokes about it. And here, a whole episode is very bleak and oppressive, and it's Sheridan fighting back, Sheridan making his case, hey, I helped prove this, and oh, I got you on a logical fallacy there, and all of that. But at the end of the day, at the end of the episode, he loses, like, he loses, he thought, oh, I've gotten them to the point where they're going to kill me. Like, my death is still a win. I still can die knowing that I my values got to them. He died and fighting. Yeah. He died fighting. And then it reveals, no, you're just in a new room. We're starting again. And that Drazi, that one thing you saw as a victory, wasn't a victory. It
1: We, 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 we organize that. We often complain about the showrunners of of different properties not wanting to get grime on their characters and JMS is getting real gritty with John in this section of the season like he he's going all in now that he's he's not being held back by Delance Opinions and morality (laughs) But she still grounds him The image of Delenn Gives him hope Because we know that from when he Like he talks to her after he came back From Zaha Doom Like you're the reason that I didn't Want to die
3: When you were a soldier you fought the Minbari The Minbari were the enemy That was the truth And then one day someone said the Minbari are no longer the enemy And that was the truth And you not only accepted them as allies, you embraced them. You took one of them as a lover. It's not the way- You swore an oath to Earth Force because you believed in it. That was the truth. Now Earth Force is supposed to be the enemy. Now that is the truth. It all depends on what you believe and what other people tell you to believe. The truth is fluid. The truth is subjective.
0: No! I think it's time for the spotlight. The part of the show where we talk about an actor or actress that appeared in a given episode, go over their performance, their career, any interesting pieces of trivia we have learned about them. And we have to talk about William the Interrogator, played by Ray, spelt with an E at the end. yeah, Yeah, uh, Burke, spelt like Kirk but with a B. It's, it, he has a very interesting name. It's like I look at it and go, that name looks like a normal name, but there's just things I'm not used to about <laughs> it. Now... Uh, Bartek I imagine one of the reasons that this episode hits so well for you is we get a fantastic at least in my opinion, a pretty fantastic guest performance. Oh yeah. At the center of it all.
2: So All of the interrogation episodes, the one doing the questioning is always really knocked it out of the park, and this one is no exception.
0: So tell us a bit about what you think of this performance, some moments in it that you like, some tricks of the trade that he's using that uh, tickle your fancy. Well, like what we
2: were saying, uh, he's got all these modes that he can jump into while still giving this presence of, you know, the pencil pusher, this kind of normal looking guy. Uh, There was somewhere I read online that described him as like the textbook example of like the banality of evil. You know, when you think of evil, you think of, oh, big, mean, Hitler, devil
0: guy. Ari Benzane with the big scar on his face and, and he's like, I'm taking over Babylon 5 because I deserved it.
2: Yeah, but this guy is, you know, bald guy in a suit, work who would assume working in an office. He's got his briefcase. Of, uh, what was it? Uh, <laughs> uh, sorry, the bag of cruel tricks and mind games. But to the naked eye, that bag is just full of papers and his lunch and A pen. pen and just normal, boring stuff. And he encapsulates all of this psychological manipulation through how he looks, how he acts, what props he has. And yeah, you have so many questions at the end of the episode about, like, was he, you know, he 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 was saying the truth a lot of the time, but was he, did he have more of a stake in all of this than he was letting on? Um, did he have more of a sympathetic edge to Sheridan like he was letting on? There are all these mysteries that we'll never get an answer to. This episode, you know, just on on paper is this psychological bottle in which like did any of this really happen it almost feels like um the fact that i'm assuming this character is never directly referenced ever again
0: no not really not
2: really no just kind of adds to this whole mystique of like this was a guy who was around but you know we can't really say all that much about him because he's just surrounded in all this mystery and the actor really you know nailed that sort of character
0: he's an enigma you can't pin him down and the best you can is you get a feeling when you're watching a scene you get an overall sensation and feeling but it's hard to articulate it because if you break it down it's 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 just it, he's a slippery character by design and the actor does a marvelous job truly truly stellar i mean this is what you want uh the, i can't think of a better way to have portrayed this because he jumps around so many different modes while still playing it very passively. Uh, is, you never. There's. There's one moment I. I wrote down as oh, this is the character at least to me showing that he is enjoying this, which is when he was going through the oh you say you're not influenced by others. But aren't we all influenced and he has a jovial quality? But even at the beginning of that, there was a sense of enjoyment of, ah, yes, Sheridan helps make it so that I can use this old routine. (laughs) Like, that was there, but it wasn't so overwhelmingly bonk, bonk on the head about it. It was trusting the actor to bring that flavor to it, but not too much i look at this like cooking where it's all the right amount of ingredients made into this it's not too spicy but it's not bland it's he is so wonderful i mean this guy we look at his career and he's a comedy guy like most of what he does is like comedy performance was when it comes to his film and television work a lot of humor and we haven't even mentioned like the episode's funny at times like the episode isn't so bleak that it makes me want to die. But and some, for some people they can't watch this episode more than once because they find it so much. Yeah, I, I like this that, is but... definitely
2: the type of character that I can see you really loving, Ryan, because you got that dark humour of this character who's kind of playing it jovially, but it's like a really dark situation, kinda like when we did that Australian film he, The Oubliette people.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. The uh, loved, loved ones. The loved ones, yeah. Uh but I I enjoyed him so much. He is an actor too. At least for from my perspective, he really n- loves using props because a lot of this performance is him fiddling with things. Those glasses. I and I don't mean this as disrespect to the writing, but I think of his character is in those glasses. You see those glasses when he takes them off and he has the indents on the side of his head because they're so tight, those glasses. Everything about those glasses, the way he cleans them, the way he puts them on, how they frame his face, tells me everything I need to know. It tells me everything I need to know, that, that he's just this little guy, these, this little accountant, this little pen pusher, but he's always watching. He's always inspecting things. He's always up close and personal. Mm. And I just really adore just that touch of, like, he's bald, yes, he's got the nice suit, but what really identifies him to me, other than just the actor's general demeanor, are those little round spectacles.
2: I haven't fully done an interpretation of what this made me feel maybe when i finish talking i'll have settled on something but one thing that i did always get drawn to is related to his glasses you know they're in this dark room with like specific spots of light and some of the light actually does shine like onto the glasses and it creates the shadow of like the edge of the frame like mm-hmm. under his eye to give these like little black shadowy lines under his eye yeah. and something about that is, is just just kept giving me this thought of like this is something I feel like I would see in like a fantasy thing like this is like almost like a sort of like demonic fantasy version of like a teardrop tattoo under the eyes it's like ah. what is going on here I thought
0: you were going to bring up uh, being a big fan of anime I thought you were going to bring up, he also has that other effect that anime uses when glasses oh, are covered frame. in nothing but white yeah. light and it gives them this very ominous sensation, like, uh, was it Gendo? In, uh, Gendo was a big one, yeah. In uh, Evangelion guy. And I got that sensation from him many times. One of my favourite shots is when he's cleaning his glasses and he's got them above him and he's looking at them and you get this magnified light on the eyes and it just does, it's very... Mm-hmm.
1: It's part of his routine. Also, does he even need the glasses? Like,
2: <laughs> well, he had to leave the room to get them.
1: Yeah, but <laughs> so like, he said. <laughs> so he said, but like it, it's something to manipulate and fiddle with. So even if he didn't actually like need a prescription, I can see him using that as part of his persona as mm-hmm. an interrogator
0: it humanizes him
1: well,
2: it gives him yeah. more an office worker
1: call yeah it, and he comes in with the briefcase and he's wearing the suit and it all adds up to a particular image of who this person is and he's continually using those assumptions against Sheridan
3: I can save your life right now
2: if you'll let me
1: because it's very specific moments that help build up the idea that this is a character that's been forged by the world that we've started to hate we don't like earth at this point in the show we don't trust them and we know that that kind of person as an individual would be fostered in this kind of environment. And one particular moment that I was appreciating a lot more on this watch was when he is really in Sheridan's face and he's like, are hey, you aware this, this is your last chance? And he's parroting back. To the moment with the Drazi, right? But when I look at his eyes, and because I know he's afraid for his own life, mm-hmm. not for Sheridan's. Mm-hmm. That's why he's so desperate. Because you're you're not disposable. I am. If I fail, I'm dead. And none of that is said. But that's the conclusion. And he says that, he's
0: expendable and yeah. Sheridan, you're not, but it's been decided that you are. And then yeah. reveal,
1: actually, no, you're still
0: not expendable. Yeah. <laughs>
1: still- and it's just like, well, we assume that he was dealt with and probably dead, but we assumed that about the Drazi and we were wrong.
0: And the fact that there's just another guy he mentions that there's just other people. So he's probably just moved and, to a different case. Yeah. Or he's just sitting there watching, going, Okay,
2: it could, yeah it use could this just method. Be like, I like He left that one. the room, turned to the new interrogator, said, All right, you're yeah. done. Here's the suit <laughs> and, and he's stripped it naked right there.
1: Goes back <laughs> It goes back to the idea that Ivanova misattributed to John. The person's expendable, the job's not. Mm. and the job of interrogating Sheridan is necessary. It's not replaceable. It's there to stay. So the fact that it is swapped out for another person and now they get a shot and they do they're gonna do their thing to try and and crack him open. It makes sense, and it's part of what makes the Civil War interesting because that kind of thing is showing us what they've been telling us about how it's hard to go against your own people, how it's hard to see what you know and the values that you have twisted Manipulated beyond their intended purpose from your perspective. So, the idea of we know that uh, Ivanova is out there continuing the fight. We don't see that. We don't have to. It's not part of this story. But knowing that she's spurred on by that idea in a way that we see as positive as the audience. And the interrogators using it against somebody that we deeply care about.
0: Bartok, are you at all familiar with this actor? Have you seen him in anything else?
2: There were a couple of things when I was looking on his IMDb. They're like, oh yeah, I've seen this. I you know would have seen him in this and I possibly would probably haven't seen him in this thing. But... Nothing to the point where I remember. Like you, nothing
1: al- strikes you.
2: You always bring up like, oh, it's, it's Papschmere from the Naked Gun movies, and I never really remember who that is.
0: He's like a recurring. He's like yeah, a recurring and, villain in all of them. Yeah,
2: and I, I was reading up like, okay, what does he specifically do? And it seems like it was a smaller role in the first film, and it was bigger in the third one. Mm-hmm. Which that's kind of my. Big thing. It's like, oh, every time I've rewatched them, like I've rewatched the first one a lot, the second one a little bit less, and the third one a lot less just because I've never gone through like the whole yeah, trilogy. Yeah. And I remember little bits about that third one, but you know. Now that I am aware of him, it would be worth seeing again, just like, oh, he's our interrogator.
0: Yeah, he is, I think in the opening scene of the first movie, if I'm not mistaken, it's the first movie, yeah, where it's like the council of all of these different political figures. There's like Gorbachev there and there's yeah. like Saddam and all that. And they talk about like how they are operating their evil plan and then Drebin comes in, does an action sequence, yeah, but Papshmi yeah. is sitting there at the desk. And it's we. the joke is like here we have all of these Iconic evil figures, or like these mm. iconic political figures. And then there's a, this little Weasley guy in a suit just looking around, just not yeah, really It's saying William. Yeah it's, <laughs> yeah, it's him.
2: I always say I love those movies, but yeah, I need to really rewatch them. I haven't watched them since I watched the first one like 2015. Mm-hmm. Haven't re watched any of them you since. You watched Police Squad, the watched show. Police Squad, yeah. Um, and it also said that he was in an episode of Seinfeld, which I've seen every episode, but I don't really
0: remember. He was in the face paint episode, the one where Puddy. Uh, Elaine's boyfriend, played by Patrick Warburton, Mm. likes to paint his face and she can't handle that. (laughs) And it
2: said that he was in an episode of Say by the Old and New Class, which I have Mm -hmm. seen bits of when I was younger,
0: but I don't remember as well. It wasn't wasn't as good. Would you be surprised what role he played in that? He played a he played a superintendent. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. he Played a superintendent. <laughs> a lot
1: of a lot of authority figures, but, but authority um, scattered figure, throughout his career. But
0: authority figures that are very—I uh, don't uh, uh, administrative—is the way I would go about them. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, like uh, clinical or we've made the stuff like that. Comparison. He probably. Already. Yeah, he yeah. probably had
2: a good rapport with Mister Belding in that episode. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Was he in that one?
0: Mr. i didn't know if he was in all of the saved by the Bells. he's They're i think saved mr the belding's Bellhead. like the only character that's in like everything okay so <laughs> the principal we have mentioned it he plays a lot of roles that are nebbish yeah uh he reminds me of william forward the actor of lord reefer well he outside of babylon 5 would because he was a middle-aged white balding man he would play a lot of Doctors, accountants, the the boss of the lady in the episode, and da 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 da. But unlike this guy, William Forward never got outside of Babylon Five. That that role, like that recurring role or that bit role, he was always a one and doneer. This guy has had roles in shows yeah. where he was ongoing, or like you know five or more episodes, yeah. or like ten or plus episodes. Of things, and again, he had in his career on IMDb related because he does have theater work that I'll talk about mainly comedies. Like, he would play comedic roles a lot, he would do a lot of funny stuff. Like, he'll be in movies and there'll be comedy movies, or he'll be in comedy shows. Like, he's in. All of the shows, uh, Night Court, Golden Girls, The Wonder Years, New Heart, Fraser, Alf... Fraser,
1: Cheers.
0: Yeah, and the same character in Fraser and Cheers, of course. Uh, where he was, get this, the crudgy old boss of one <laughs> of the characters who would come in and say things. Third Rock from the Sun. Uh, he would be in all of those type of things, Seinfeld has mentioned. And of course,. Drama-wise, he was also in all of the big shows, The X-Files he was in.
1: Days of Our Lives. uh, Yeah,
0: and Star (laughs) Trek. Of course, doing sci-fi, he was in Star Trek. Yeah. So he was in the first season of Star Trek Mm -hmm. and in one of the movies.
1: Yeah, TNG and Insurrection.
0: Yeah, which is a TNG movie. And so he was in Hill Street Blues, which is relevant because – they often get actors from there because some of the production worked there and obviously some of the actors were from Hill Street Blues. Peter Juricic was a recurring character on Hill Street Blues. I don't know exactly where they got him from, but I'm guessing the theatre realm because this guy's a big theatre guy and they get a lot of theatre actors in their shows as well, like Wayne Alexander, the interrogator. Theatre actors
2: and anime dub people.
0: Which often are the same. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if Wayne Alexander is involved. I didn't find any evidence of that, but Wayne Alexander has been involved in getting other actors and other production people I in will... Babylon 5 because he has a theatre background with them. Lord Kataj, I mean Emperor Kataja, he was somebody that Wayne Alexander knew from theatre work, and so here he is in Babylon 5 getting to chew up the scenery because that actor knew half the people who work on B5 theatre. The,
2: a lot of the characters you're mentioning right now are characters that I would describe as theatrical.
0: Yes, and so I love that his career in TV and film has been playing these nebbish roles, these type of roles, but with more of an overt comedic lens because I can see that a little bit. But since this episode is quite serious and he's saying so many things and they're being delivered pretty straight. You can also be surprised by that fact. Like, this is a comedy guy. And we know from the fact that many of the actors here in the show that are mainstays, like Peter Jurisic, like Stephen First, are comedy actors. Like, that's their specialty. That's the thing that they're known for. That's the thing that they thrive doing. Yet, Babylon 5 gives them the material and says, come up to the plate and let's hit it out of the park. And here, here's a whole episode where this guy, who's known for doing comedies on TV and film, You are going to do this role. You're going to be one of the main players. It's not comedy specific. There's little bits of comedy, but it's not a comedic role. Uh, And they trust him just to do that because you seem like a good actor. You probably gave a good audition or you look right for the part. I adore that so, so much about B5, where they'll get actors who have a certain image in their career, whether it is like Stephen First or even Walter Koenig, your Chekhov from Star Trek, and yet they can come in and make him Besta, one of the scariest motherfuckers. They do that time and time again with big or small characters in their roster, whether it's a guest star or a mainstay.
3: I find that most remarkable. I mean, aren't we all under the influence of others? part of being in the world. Somebody in the office is in a bad mood. Pretty soon everybody's in a bad mood. We're all influenced by other people. You've really never been influenced by anyone else?
1: I just want to acknowledge he's another spotlight actor that was in Touch by an Angel. One of your favourite shows. He was um, not in Gilmore Girls though. Not. Tragic. No. And note that he was in colombo i don't think he mentioned that. no he was in the 90s colombo yes, so 97 which is after, after this. this this guy's got a lot of credits
0: in his in his career he does. but the interesting thing i noted was he stopped uh tv and film acting around what was it 2013 i want to say mm. but basically He started doing this massive run from the mid-80s right to the late 90s and then really dwindled off in the 2000s, like really slowed down. Switched modes. This guy has like, I don't know, like nearly 100 credits or around that, And it's like, you look at it and it's like within like a 12-year span, he fit that all in, while some of the other actors we do on the spotlight, they they have pretty much the same amount as he does over their 30, 40-year career. This guy fitted in real quick and then
1: said, I'm out.
2: He was neglecting a lot of paperwork while he was acting.
1: <laughs> um so are you ready to get into some more of the personal yeah facts. Uh so IMDb says that he was a professor of theater studies yeah. at a university for a while in Los I Angeles. Think I, like, butchered that, the idea that... like Yeah, he was a professor of
0: theatre at a university in Southern California. I did look on Twitter as of 2017 somebody was talking about how they were excited to do his class. So, that was roughly around the time. He has since moved in uh into massachusetts Mm -hmm. in 2020 so i don't think he's a professor at the same college if at all a professor still i
2: i noticed on imdb that someone put him in a list that was titled actors and that's actor apostrophe s who have played gay
0: that is true you want to know a fact about that golden girls he was a very sassy gay character there one of Uh, his
1: earliest jobs as well um so, I found a very fun article from Twin Cities Pioneer Press, uh, which is titled, Nine Questions with Veteran Twin Cities Actor, actor Ray Burke. He's uh, also done a lot of stage work as well. I, even though his TV credits have dried up. That so- hasn't. Yeah. He he's he's still working. He's just Yeah, he was in a play right
0: up until the start of this year. Yep. With uh, Mark
1: Rylance, the Academy Award winning actor. So in this article he says, I've always been a character actor all of my life and I've always played roles I was older than. So it's great when you're suddenly the right age. Like he's now old enough to play the roles that he was playing like twenty years ago, yeah,
2: he was fourteen in this episode.
1: <laughs> he acknowledges that, like he did King Lear when he was definitely not the age that King Lear is meant to be mm. um, he said such a quaint answer, like they like some of these questions are like really. Just boilerplate kind of interview questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them is, what would you do if you had a million dollars?
2: Get then. someone else to finish your paperwork.
1: <laughs> no.
0: Buy a new pen for my paperwork. <laughs> new pencil to push.
1: Then I'd get a place to go in winter that's a bit warmer.
2: Thank you, Ray.
1: How, how quaint?
2: Don't have to wear a jacket.
1: Who do you think he wants to play him in a movie?
0: I mean, he looks like Richard Jenkins, so Richard Jenkins should play him Jason in a Jason Alexander. He should you know, he's gonna say someone with a full head of hair. I mean knowing Fabio. him. Fabio. Yeah, Fabio. <laughs> Robin Atkin down should play me in a movie. <laughs> no, uh, who who did
1: he suggest? He he suggested two people.
2: Jason Alexander, and
0: Fabio.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, funnily enough, it's Robert Duvall and Bob Newhart. That makes sense. He okay, was yeah. on
0: Newhart as well. Uh, so, And both of those actors make sense. Newhart has that nervous, I'm just a guy who can't stop babbling type energy, and Robert Duvall just kind of looks like this guy too.
2: Yeah, Robert Duvall in uh, Falling Down. especially. Right,
0: yeah. yeah. And this guy, I should point out, Usually has a mustache. Every time I've seen him, not when he was, like, in a TV show, like, outside of TV, he usually has a mustache. Like, he likes wearing a little
1: mustache. Okay. So, he is not a person who set out to be an actor from a young age. It's not what he he thought he would do with his life. Can I guess? Yes. (laughs) Can I guess? Just looking at
0: him, I'm in a room f- with two of you. I think he was going to be a teacher.
1: But what kind? <laughs> well, Business like, teacher.
0: No, no, no. It has to be a twist. We're thinking of him as very <laughs> yeah, like yeah, mundane. Yeah. He needs to do something else. Outdoor education. Oh, yeah. He's like their sports teacher. Could you imagine him? He's like got a I was like going a to be f- a
1: physical education <laughs> teacher. <laughs>
0: yes, like Hugh Jackman. <gasps> Him and Hugh Jackman should be in a movie together <laughs> as teachers.
1: Uh, so he goes on, my freshman year in college, I talked to people in the field and I realised I was going to be stuck in a gym with basketball, so maybe I wanted to teach something else. <laughs> <laughs> my freshman English teacher, who, for want of a better term, was a failed actor, <laughs> Was always trying to get guys to try out for the play, so in my spring quarter I tried out for Cat and a Hot Tin Roof. I was cast as Reverend Porter and I fell in love with making plays. Oh, that's nice. So I changed schools to Northwestern and I was on that path from
0: that time. I have learned that his theatre work, he's done quite a plethora of roles, but one of the plays he goes back to a lot, or at least I've seen referenced multiple times, is A Christmas Carol. So he has played Marley, but he has also played Scrooge himself. So I think that's really interesting Like that's a role he keeps coming back to. And even before we did this episode recording, I remember months and months ago, I saw an article on one of the B5 subreddits or groups or whatever of him in all of this garb of a Christmas carol, like the the period piece clothing. And it was just an interview talking about this production he was doing and just how much he loves to portray characters and Dickens' work and stuff like that. And I just find that such a like such a exhilarating thing to read about because uh, most actors i never hear them say oh i love doing something like a christmas carol which is a story that has always been going just you we always get remakes and redos and retellings and productions of it but i've never heard anyone talk about it with such flair and passion like he does where he's played marley he's played scrooge and there was an article I read. I don't know if you read this one, Rachel, where it was an interview with him and a fellow acting friend of his. It's almost like this is his duo. Like he is an actor. There's mm-hmm. this acting duo, this one theater group that they have. Where at one time the other guy played Scrooge and he played Marley, and then they swapped around. And the actor's name is Peter Michael um, Goet um, Gauthier. I can't. Remi- I'm not too sure how to pronounce the last name, but uh PMJ they keep PMG they keep calling him uh there's an interview with them it's just a written interview but you can tell that these guys are almost like an old married couple like yeah. they they tell stories of their career and he talks about uh I actually read the the cat in the hot tin roof and he's like, I did that at school, and everyone commended me, and it was great. And then the other guy snapped in and went, He's never had a bigger success than that one. <laughs> and then, and then he snaps back, was like, You're damn right. I peaked right then and there. And it's just they, they have this old the banter. The banter is just so electrifying, and they just really know each other. And from what I gather, is he knows he's a character actor. He knows it, and he embraces um, it. Yeah. And and he talked about in that interview. This was in 2012, so this is 11 years ago. That actually is getting hard. when you're older even when you're a character actor like he actually broke down something i've always wondered which is there's a security that you have as a character actor like you can fill these roles but he he breaks down for us in this interview like but that does fade away Even when you get older, I've played roles that I shouldn't have been playing because I was much younger, but I always looked older because I'm bolding and I just have this look. But I'm reaching that time in life where even those type of roles aren't being granted to me. Those type of things are going away. And what I'm looking like, what I am now, there's there's just less characters to play like that. There's Mm -hmm. just less opportunities. And my passion for acting hasn't faded so it's a real thing to just really contend with and that's something we 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 take for granted as viewers but when you actually think about it and you really look into these things i mean that must be really tough for actors especially ones like him where he plays a certain type of like he plays certain type of roles when we're talking about film and television mm. and uh, those those dry up uh, as you get older sometimes as well some character actors are lucky where it's like they get older the more work they get but this guy yeah it seems like it kind of faded away and he just has given up the, the, the craft when it comes to film and TV and he's just focusing on theatre where he has his theatre groups that he likes They, he's a part of the stable of actors and so hey you want to be doing a, a Shakespeare production of course I do So off you go. I've watched some YouTube videos of him right up until like within the last five years of some theater company where their whole entire little video is of him doing a thing. He does a lot of music as well. And one of his first roles on IMDb was him as, as a singer in something. And that really got me curious. So like, you mean like
2: musicals?
0: Yeah, like music in general. So, for instance, there was a production he was doing that wasn't a musical. It was a music production of like freestyle jazz okay. thing. And it's him doing the narration over it. So he's reading these words. but like in, rhythmically? Rhythmically. Okay. And it's him. And he sounds like the interrogator doing it. Like it's very precise and and very like clockwork rhythm to it and I would not have guessed that he would be someone who would be capable of doing that. Like, when you think of these theater actors, I think of, say, John Vickery, for instance, where it's like, of course that guy, like, the guy who did Naroon, of course he did Scar. Or, of course, he's done Shakespeare. But when I look at this guy, I did not think at all, oh, yeah, there would be some musical stuff in his background, like, especially of that variety. So that was just really exhilarating to just pick up upon. Like, this is a guy that's still out there working. He's just done a play. Where, no joke, the play has Oscar-winning actor Mark Rylance in it, and all of the reviews were like three stars out of five, or two out of five, and all of them were like, ah, Mark Rylance was fine. You know who was really great, though? This Ray Burke guy. <laughs> I read this thing where it's like, he played this grandpa character, and he was great. He had this whole monologue about how you get so old, you don't even know if you have pants are zipped up anymore, and I want to see this performance. I'm like, oh, wow, can you... Can you dream of that? Just you, just some character who's been in the biz for ages, you're acting opposite of, of a fucking movie star right now, somebody who's also known for being a great stage actor, and everyone's like, you know, that guy, eh, but that other guy, that like that, that, that Ray Burke guy, now that's the guy to keep an eye on.
1: That's great. I have one more thing that I would like to share because I thought that this would be a nice button to the spotlight, which is the last question in the article that I was talking about is what's your motto and his answer was i try to stay open to what's coming and not look too much to the future or too much to the past down a hot and dusty road tramps
3: a soldier with his load 10 days leave he has to spend will his journey never end marching home marching on his way marching marching all the day soon he will be home to
0: stay on our scale of yum being bad and yum yum being good we do not do half yums no oh this is good-ish or this is bad-ish this is ya. Yeah. no ya. Yeah. no yum and a half a yamaha uh, we only accept good or bad. We're very binary in that way. I'm so sorry if that offends you that we give episodes that you think are good a yum. But we're here to determine if intersections in real time is yum or yum yum for us. For me, it's clearly a yum yum. Yum yum.
2: For me, this is yummiest yummiest. Yum yum.
1: Yum yum for me. Yum yum.
2: Wow, you hate it that much too, yums? <sighs>
0: Well, Jake, you're like the fifth person to make that joke and the other four and the other four with me fine then i'll say
2: something new new section guys gossiping hens we're talking about Sheridan again there's something in this episode that i noticed when i first watched the show like oh a change in this episode carries through to the rest of the show
0: the facial hair the, the facial, facial hair, hair. Yeah, it's, it's like it's he
2: transforms going. in this episode and like kind of keeps it up for the rest of the show so is this cuz you've seen the show more the beginning of this episode, is this the last time we see him clean-shaven?
0: Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no. No, no, no. No? he I think he's clean-shaven in the season four finale actually great question i think he may actually keep the facial because i think that was like something i
2: noticed when i was watching like wow he that experience like he changed and like he kept the facial hair but he
0: made it a goatee which is the the... worst part of the whole
2: story (laughs) well yeah yeah he he does restyle it but like he's always got facial hair after this episode
0: thank you this episode for allowing that to happen because i mean not the goatee though I like him when he has just a beard. I, I he mean, looks good he, with just a beard. I don't I like I mean, in, se-
2: in season five, I kind of remember, you know, because the whole war thing's over and this is kind of like new season, kind of like, you know, new different characters are in the spotlight. So you've got like a bit more of an ensemble thing going on. He's still the main character, but like less so. Like the facial hair kind of almost builds up this like, oh, president character. He's like busy. So you don't see him as much. So it almost feels you know, poignant that, like, he changes physically in that way as well.
0: That is a fair. And he doesn't have to wear a uniform anymore. Mm. Like, of any kind. He just wears business clothes. So, I have the description for the next episode of Babylon 5. On the next Babylon 5. The DVD breaks this down as such. We will be talking about episode 19 of season 4, Between the Darkness and the Light and it is stated as such, outnumbered but not outfought. Ivanova defies the odds, leading a smaller fleet against a a waiting Earth Force armada. A rescue force led by Garibaldi uses wit and brawn to rescue Sheridan. Uh. I love that. Though meanwhile... No, I'm kidding. It's all about wit and brawn on Babylon 5. Bartik, thank you so much for coming back on and joining us yet again to talk about this series. It's been so great to have this recurring thing of each season. We find the interrogation episode, <laughs> and it, it ain't over. We got another season left. So what will it be, guys? You'll have to wait and find out. Isn't that right, Rachel? they have to wait... Episode by episode, joining us week to week. Heck, they can even follow us on our social media platforms and see. Maybe we'll make a hint of what the future interrogation episode is. But you'll have to follow us under Yum Yum Pod or Yum Yum Podcast. But it's like, where can people find our other podcasts, our show together that we do?
2: Thanks. Because, you know, first you were thanking me and then I didn't get a chance to say thanks. And then you kept uh, talking, so I had to I didn't realize, to I didn't realize you yeah. had
0: to thank me for coming on. Well, you mean, you
2: thanked me, so I had to thank you back for having me on. And then you asked the a question. It's where like, well, I have to thank you first. More it's of the this, order.
0: Where can people hear more of our witty banter like this?
2: Uh, our witty banter and brawn can be found on the internet. Just look up Spit and Polish Presents. We're on uh, the YouTube. We're on Podbean. We're on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, you got Google it. Google thingy. Google Podcasts. Uh Spotify. Um i Heart Emoji Radio. Uh it's really all sorts of places where we've spread the web quite far. There's even a random Spanish one. Um we're also on Twitter, Spit and Polish Presents is the name. We have the email, spitandpolished at gmail com uh yeah check out our other podcast we not too long ago did an episode on a film called enough said where rachel was our guest so if you want to hear the three of us doing our thing together you can listen to that as well
0: Oh, that was a very enjoyable movie to discuss on there. So if you want to hear us talk about movies, come on over to Spit and Polish Presents. And yes, there are times where B5 actors have come on and I've pointed going, that's that person. And Bartek at that time would just shrug and go, I don't know who that is. I can't recollect if we've had... Babylon 5 actors on again since you've consumed B5, like, major ones. Maybe, like, little character actors here and there, but I'm not thinking we have uh, since you've watched it. We we had a movie called A uh, Gnome Named Gnorm yeah, we'll that a had Claudia Christian in it. <laughs> I was like, this is a wonderful, by the way. Yeah. Uh, now, Rachel, could you wrap us out? Could you tell everyone where they can contact us and about all this bonus content we're making?
1: And can find us, uh, the Yum Yum Podcast, on various social medias under Yum Yum Pod or Yum Yum Podcast. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, TikTok, YouTube. You want to find our uh, uh, extra content, then you uh, better head over to our Patreon where we have a few different ongoing shows over there. We're going through The Expanse. We've just finished up the Alien movies. We watched Prometheus, Bartek.
0: The only Alien movie you've ever seen. Prometheus. You
2: guys are on TikTok?
0: (laughs) That's the crime he feels.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, And giving our thoughts on various pieces of media. Oh, we've given thoughts on things like tw- Twin Peaks. We
0: recently gave yeah. some thoughts on and as a well, a separate
1: episode on Fire Walk with Me.
0: Ah, there was a fun thing that actor. that was Ray Burke. That's Ray Burke's acting colleague. He was in several episodes of Twin Peaks, and I wanted to know who this character of Jared was. Answer: recurring minor character in the Invitation to Love segments on Twin Peaks. Oh, there's the there's soap opera, opera, opera in the first season. Yeah, oh, right.
1: I I love that. I love that. Um, and if that's a bit too impersonal, you can directly contact us via email at yumyumpod at com.
0: That is it. Until next time, everyone, remember that Jakar did not show up here.
1: No. But
0: if he did, if he opened that oh, door. <laughs> if he
1: had that sandwich.
0: Oh, he would have banged his chest and said, Good evening to you, Sheridan. And then he would have taken the sandwich away. And it would have been fun because he's an alien and he's already got a tracking like, device in his belly. What do you mean this belly. has
1: mustard?
0: Oh, God.
2: It's, what got, you... it's got toxins as well, Mr. G-Car.
1: I'm fine. I have gills. He has a pouch. He
0: can put the sandwich in his little pouch. He's a fish kangaroo. <laughs>
2: Get